0: 2, 14 to 18. When I was younger, we would often uh, go with, with Dad, and uh, we'd uh, go in the car, and we'd, uh, we lived uh, kind of on a dirt road, and there's a lot of uh, even uh, fields and things like that on the road, and so we'd, we'd go, and, and we'd stop at a field at night, and we'd shine a spotlight into the field. I, I was asking the students this morning, "Is like, is it called shining or spotting?" Like, I want to know so I don't sound dumb. Um, and uh, that there was not a consensus. So, so some uh, may call that uh, spotting or shining or spotlighting. Uh, that seems like too many syllables. I don't know. Uh, either way, we were shining out into the field uh, in order to see deer. And so you would uh, go at night, and, and you'd shine it, and, and you're out, you'd see the deer. And then, of course, um, growing up and, you know, in a, in, a, in a family that hunts, what you would do is, like, in that moment, you say, well, there are deer around this area, right? <laughs> because when you're sitting in the woods, you would never see the deer. And then as you're shining the spotlight, oh, they do exist. Uh, here they are. Well, it would be really ridiculous if we're doing this one night, and... and my dad were to say, Hey, hey boys, do you want to go uh, s- s- spotting tonight? Do you want to go uh, shining? And he said, Dad, I think it's too dark out. It's too dark. We can't go tonight. He said, well, What are you talking about? That's the whole point. Like, the, the light lights up the field. Like, that's, that's the purpose. Well, if we're not careful, we can have that same kind of attitude. About ourselves in culture today. It's too dark out. It's too difficult. When Scripture says, shine as lights, that's the whole point. That's the purpose. When's the light the most seen? And it's even more than a high lumen spotlight. Because in the passage that we see this morning, as we open up, as we read it together, Paul is uh, appealing to, he's echoing a statement made in Daniel chapter 12, which talks about believers shining as stars in the sky. Shining as stars. Oh, how easy it is for us to lament and be uh, weary and there's no way we can do anything in this culture when scripture calls us stars in the sky. And what's interesting is that in Daniel when it's talking about, this is talking about like the end times. This is talking about like the, the end, like when there's a like, kind of like resurrection. Like, and then Paul's referencing this now, like What is happening? What Paul is saying is, you already are, in a sense, what you will be. There's some sense, because we are spiritually resurrected, if you're a Christian here this morning, you've been brought to new life, you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And there's a sense where even now we are to shine as stars. Stars. You see, there's an already not yet and the already has broken in because we have tasted spiritual resurrection through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that anticipates and points forward to the day when we will shine like stars as Daniel is referencing. Well, let's jump in here. Um, This is an exciting thing because as we talk about this idea, as we Think about this concept of shining in the darkness and shining in the culture that we live. The the thoughts that might come to our mind is, well, that sounds great, but how does that happen? What does that look like? Well, that's what uh, Paul is going to be addressing here in our passage this morning. Really, it's a continuation of some of the verses that we touched on uh, a week ago. We're talking about working out our salvation and really Paul is saying well this is this is kind of subpoints. this is what this looks like in day-to-day life and so we're going to look at that and as we do that we can shine as lights in this culture so let's read t- through it together and then we're going to slow down and unpack it section by section so Philippians 2 verse 14 do all things without grumbling or disputing some of your translations might say arguing That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. There it is. Holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm poured out, even if I'm too if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So let's unpack this section by section. First, shine as lights by not complaining or arguing. Shine as lights by not complaining or arguing. In fact, he he starts actually by saying... uh, do all things, right? Do all things. This is coming after, again, he told them to work out their salvation. He's bringing it full circle. First they're told to work it out, then they're reminded that it's actually God who's at work in them, and now they're instructed to do these things. As Pastor Nate mentioned last week, sometimes we can fall into two errors, either kind of a works-based error, leaning on our own works, uh, for, for our salvation, depending on, it's, it's all on us. Or getting this, kind of this mentality of letting go and letting God. Uh, instead, uh, Paul uh, circles back. He's saying this is this grace-fueled effort. This is, this is what this looks like uh, in our lives. And so, w- one thing that we can notice is that Paul doesn't tell them Uh, the things that they're supposed to do, rather he tells them the way they're supposed to do things. One commentator says this, I I like this, he says, he does not outline a course of action, but calls for a kind of action. So what is this kind of action? It's one that doesn't include grumbling or arguing. The Greek word for grumbling occurs eight times in the Old Testament, and seven of them relate to Israels grumbling in the wilderness. And so this is a clear New Testament echo to this repeated theme in the Old Testament of them rebelling against God's call for them. And when they rebel against God's call is often associated with judgment. So there's even this idea here that Paul's Drawing out. One other thing that's happening, as is, is Paul's referencing this, is he's drawing a line of continuity, some kind of correlation between uh, the vocation of Israel, what Israel's supposed to do, who they're supposed to be in this world, and what the church is supposed to be in this world. Right? Right? A called-out people to reflect God. And one way that happens, what, what should we do in the midst of that? We should not complain. complaining or grumbling implies moral rebellion it's a spirit of dissatisfaction and insubordination and the wilderness was often directed towards the leadership that God had appointed it's not necessarily the implication here it may be more of a general dissatisfaction and fixation on personal preferences that harms the community One commentator said this, I think, is helpful, kind of his, his summary of it. He so said, the word is used in the New Testament usually has an ethically bad sense. Selfish complaining, unbalanced criticism of small matters, impatience towards what is not understood, grudging unwillingness to be helpful, all expressed outwardly. You say, well, Pastor Nick, give us something practical. Give us something that uh, we might struggle with. Who struggles with this? All of us, right? And yet here, Paul in his instruction isn't giving wiggle room. He's not saying, hey, this would be great if you did this. It'd be be helpful. He says, avoid that. Avoid this complaining, this impatience towards, towards others. He also mentions arguing, arguing, disputing in the ESV, arguing in some of the other translations. The updated version of uh, the NASB has questioning. This word relates to inward expression as well. The thoughts of the person is translated in other New Testament passages as evil thoughts. So this idea of arguing relates to our heart attitude and not just outward action. So Paul's getting to both the kind of outward the spilling out and also kind of like what's going on in our heart. Saying, as you do all these things, don't do them with complaining or arguing. If you want to be lights in this world, if you want to shine, how do you do that? By not complaining and arguing. It's not just the external actions of complaining. It's the heart that is focused on self-interests. It places self above the good of the community and ultimately above God. I know what's best. If I was doing things, things would be better. Often relates to I know what's best for my interest and things would be better for me if I was doing it. It's similar to Judas saying I would spend money this way. Trying to appear holy, but really motivated by self-interest. How easy it is to fall into this trap of complaining and arguing, and how harmful it is to our Christian witness. Our Christian witness. Recently, there was a uh, an episode in a uh, in an NFL game of a quarterback flipping out on his coach. Um, now, they weren't doing that well before. They ended up winning the game. But the whole reflection and people's commentary and kind of reflecting back on that is, that was a, that's a really unhealthy situation that's going on there. Okay. So the entire win, the entire team effort is overshadowed by this one incident. And so it can be even in our own spiritual lives, in our own instruction of others, even in our own leading and guiding our homes. It can be easy for us to take a passage like this and make it like a, a family life verse, right? Do all things without complaining or arguing. Like, let's, let's put that one above the, like, on the fridge. Let's, let's post that all over the house. Like, that's, that's necessary, and yet in the context, is talking about the local church and how it's important for us to be unified together. And how often can we have this on our refrigerator and then we can even have it in our, our car and then we're complaining about somebody in church. We're murmuring under our breath. Uh, we're undermining what we're trying to teach. Now don't misunderstand that this doesn't mean that you can't bring objections or you know talk to us about concerns and things like that that's that's not what I'm getting at uh, but we, we do live in a society as 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 I was reflecting on this and we just had Sunday school with the students and it, it was interesting because we're, we're doing kind of a cultural analysis and uh, part of the focus was on uh, how we can be um, so much of our happiness we believe is in, in, in the culture that we live is kind of inward in how I feel at the moment. I have to kind of maintain that. And how that relates to this, doesn't it? Because as we complain, as we vent, as we kind of like express, how is that understood to those around us? Oh, good for you. That's good that you need to get those feelings out. We're championing it. We're validating it. This is just you being you. And Paul's like, stop it. Yeah. We can glorify this behavior by saying, well, this is just us expressing ourselves. We have to be careful of that as well. Again, that doesn't mean that we can't have valid objections, but often this is um, just putting preferences above anything else. And so we have to be careful there. And he's saying it for a purpose. They, they should do this so that they can be blameless and innocent. Children of God. Well, they're already children of God. We I mean, know these are Christians, but throughout Scripture, Christians are called to be what they already are. We are children of God, so we're called to live this out. We're called to showcase this to the world. And Paul's illustration of light gets this point across, doesn't it? Light is a good example of doing by being. It does what it's supposed to do by being what it is. And so as Christians, we should be who we are. We should live into the reality that we are light in this world. And Christians should be above reproach in our conduct. When this idea of blameless and Ill, innocent, that does not mean that completely sinless. We, we know that the Bible says that we're all sinners, Romans 3.23. Romans it says that if we say we don't have sin, we make God a liar, 1 John 1.10. So what does blameless mean? Well, Paul says that he was blameless when it came to keeping the law. It doesn't mean he was perfect, but it means he was diligently striving to keep the law and to not be open to accusation. Blameless refers to a character that aligns with God's law. Innocent is similar, but to the world around us. It doesn't mean that there can't be false allegations, but there should be a a reputation of being respectable to those around you. There's also implications that this is a heart action, a heart disposition, an outward posture. So Christians are called to be blameless and innocent in this world. That means while our primary aim is to please God and not please men, we should be concerned about our reputation and not staining the name of Christ with our conduct should be above reproach and our conduct. We also see that the church is called to be distinct. Called to be distinct. Or be blemish in the midst of what? A crooked and twisted generation. It's helpful to see this side-by-side uh, side with Deuteronomy uh, 32, five. Deuteronomy 32.5, uh, because we can see much of the same language being used. Deuteronomy 32, five, they dealt cr- corruptly with him, they are no longer his children, because they are blemished, they are a crooked and twisted generation, again it's giving you the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew there, that's what LXX stands for, uh, the Septuagint, is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, that they may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in, the world, in this world. You can see a similarity, can't you, between these two verses. Similar language is being used. But what's interesting is that in Deuteronomy, it's the crooked and twisted generation is speaking about the people of God. It's reference to them. This is what you guys are like. And the crooked crooked and twisted generation that Paul's speaking about is the world outside. And so this just gives, while there's continuity between uh, the Old Testament and and New Testament, the Old Covenant and New Covenant, there's discontinuity as well, isn't there? And the discontinuity is that we are people who are saved apart, that we are separated from That it's not as if, you know, as as Paul says, not all Israel is Israel. All of the church is the church, we could say. It's a distinction that we love as Baptists, right? That's why we baptize believers. Because they are part of the new covenant, people of God. They are brought out of the world in order to be contrasted with it for the good of the world. And so we see this distinction even here that, that Paul is making is is you're called to shine in the midst of the world around you. You're called to be distinct. You're called to have different kind of allegiances. And ultimately our allegiance as Christians, right, is to Christ himself as our king of kings. He says this, In light of this immediate following, among whom you shine as stars. You see, as the night gets darker, the stars appear brighter. So it is with Christians in the midst of crooked and twisted generation. But how do we shine? How do we be what we're supposed to be? And this is what Paul addresses next. They're to shine as lights by holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast to the word of life. The second aspect of working out their salvation in a way that is a light to the world is by holding fast to the word of life. Holding fast, as we see uh, here, um, can also be translated holding forth, as some translations might have. Uh, This would imply that uh, shining as lights relates to bringing the message to others. Uh, We are called to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, in, In the context here, It's getting more at this idea of holding fast to it, Uh, clinging to it, being informed by it, being transformed by it. This is is our rule because it's important for us to recognize that Christians are not immune to false accusations as they hold fast. Christians have always been open to this. In fact, in the early church, they were accused of atheism, cannibalism, and incest. The early church was accused of atheism, cannibalism, and incest. They were accused of atheism because they did not worship the same gods as those around them. So they did not participate in these these religious rituals, and so they were seen as atheists. They were seen as uh, cannibals because they were told, hey, they are taking this meal where they said this is somebody's body and blood. We don't know what's happening there. We just know that is somebody's body and blood, and that's what they're talking about, and they're eating and drinking it, uh, that's not good. Right? So they're seen as, because of communion, because of the Lord's Supper, they're seen as cannibals. Uh, incest, because they called one another brother and sister. Right? Even their husband or wife is still their brother or sister in Christ. And so they well, these People must believe in incest, right? These are false accusations because somebody doesn't understand and yet they're holding its coming because they're trying to be faithful to the word of God. And the same thing happens today, doesn't it? Christians hate women. They don't love women. Might be an accusation because of our belief that life begins at conception. Christians only care about uh, getting a baby out and not, and not caring after that. Right? You hear accusations like this today. When the truth is, the reality is, Christians do more than any other people for moms, for uh, care in these ways. But again, these are accusations that we can't, we're not immune from, they're going to come. But if they're going to come, let them come as we hold fast to the word of life. They're not coming because of our own opinions or our own desires or our own uh, trying to appear righteous before the world. But they're coming because we're standing firmly on the Word of God. And we're okay with that. That's how we're called to be distinct. We don't have permission to be distinct in our own way. We're called to be distinct as we stand on the Word of God. That is the distinction. That is the distinguishing mark. So Christians don't hold fast to their opinions but to God's word. That's what this idea of word of life is referring to. Jesus is referred to as the word of life made flesh in 1 John 1.1. We see in 1 Peter 1.23 that believers are born again through the living word of God. And all throughout scripture, we see God's word associated with life. So this idea of word of life, this is talking about the word that testifies to, that speaks about Jesus. It's talking about the Bible. It's a word that Hebrews tells us is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. And Paul is instructing the Philippians that they work out their salvation in such a way that they shine as lights. And they need to be unified by not complaining, arguing, and they need to hold fast to the word of life. We start to see here characteristics for the local church. Of people who are unified in spirit and committed to the Bible. And Paul gives a reason, again, he says, that this way his, his labor won't be in vain, but he can, he can boast. Right? Paul's boasting in his work and his effort is not because he thinks he's so awesome and so great, but it, it's, his work is so aligned, it's so associated with what God's doing. That when it goes well, he's, he's just celebrating because God's getting glory. Is that how we're identifying our work? In the world? In the church? In our homes? And Paul's looking at the end and saying, hey, I'm going to do this in, until the day of Christ. I, in, in that day, I'll be proud. He's saying, I'm going to continue to do this until that day. I don't know when it's going to be, but in that time I'm going, to, I'm going to use this opportunity because it's for your good. Remember when he said that with, to live is Christ, to die is gain? I'm going to live for you in this opportunity. How are you, we using the opportunities that God has given us for the good of others? We also see this idea of holding fast often brings with an opportunity to hold forth. Right. So while well, I don't think the primary aim here is holding out and, and sharing the gospel, that's, that's a great thing, we should be doing that. But if we're holding fast, it also creates opportunity for those things. Okay. Uh, recently, at the beginning of the year, and some of you know this, I was, uh, I decided I need to um, lose some seminary weight, right? Um, and so I uh, so, started working out because I Gain a little weight during seminary, and uh, I need to start start hitting the gym and 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 working off uh, these late night study session uh, snacks and things like that. And so um, started to do that. And one thing that's interesting about like as you're going to uh, kind of gym or a uh, gym culture is there there's certain people that you can tell they're fit. They know what they're doing. Um, and those are the people that people just like they don't like go around like want, like hey, work out like me right? But other people just kind of gravitate towards them? Or do they just start to ask, hey, am I doing this exercise right? Right? It's simply people there who are trying to be be faithful, just trying to, to, you know, put in the time, be healthy, and others are just naturally gravitating towards them and saying, hey, is, is this right? Does this look good? And they are able to share. That's one reason I'm, I'm like, no, I'm starting to get healthy, because people are like actually talking to me now. <laughs> he has no clue what he's doing. Leave, let him in the corner, and I was like, they're coming up, and there's conversations that are just naturally happening. The same thing can happen in, in spiritual conversations, can it? In the way that we raise our kids, in the way that we care for others, people just, ask, like, what is it about you? Can you share with me your secret? Like, how did you know, your, your kids do that? Or how, how did that happen over there? And right? sometimes these conversations just happen in the course of just being faithful. Right? It doesn't mean, again, there's other commands for us to go and, and share the good news. Do that as well. But it'll be interesting to see how many opportunities that we have simply by being lights, as we're called to be. Right? If you're spending the workday complaining about people at the church... Don't be surprised if nobody asks you about the hope that you have in you. So holding fast gives opportunity to hold forth. When those opportunities come, take advantage of them. Share the good news of Jesus Christ. The third, shine his lights by self-giving. By self-giving. See in verse 17, even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Here we have another character trait for how the Philippians and all Christians are to live. Paul gives an example of his own life. He's willing to be spilled out for their good. He says that his life is poured out over them as a kind of a sacrifice. He's pouring himself out for their good. The reference to their faith is a way for Paul to encourage them. He's not hounding them in order to heap condemnation on them, to challenge and instruct them. And too often we can focus on the commands of God and lose sight of the promises of God. And Paul grounds the commands in the promises and the hope that we have as Christians. He is eager to challenge and he's also eager to encourage. The image of their faith as a sacrifice also helps us with what he's trying to get at. He is referring to being poured out onto the sacrifice. We see this in our Exodus uh, chapter 29, verse 28 to 41. There's a drink offering that's poured on top of kind of an animal sacrifice. So wine is either poured out kind of in front of or on top of a sacrifice and, and produces kind of a steam that rises up. Right? Kind of like a, a symbolizing kind of a that the sacrifice itself is a pleasing aroma to God. So there's a sense where Paul is is saying, I I am being poured out over you. In in other words, I'm completing your sacrifice to to God. I'm I'm mixing myself with you. And and we're both offering this to the Lord in a way that's pleasing to him. I'm deeply associating myself with you, but I'm doing it in such a way that I am not self-seeking, but I'm seeking your good. To complete what you're doing. Uh, the Christian life is a, is a life of self denial. Jesus said to take up our cross and follow Him. It desires to make others better and give of ourselves for the good of those around us. Is it called a sacrifice? And yeah, sometimes I, I think we're. Not as aware of that as, as we could be. It reminds me of, sometimes my kids will surprise me. And they'll like totally set their needs aside for like the needs of their siblings. And that just like makes a, a parent really, really happy when that happens. In fact, this this happened the other day. Well, I thought it did. Um, and one of, one of my kids, <clears throat> uh, one of my kids uh, is, we, we got a uh, Slurpee after after I picked him up from school, and we stopped there and got it, and it was just him that had it, and his siblings uh, came home, and so here he is uh, with his his uh, Slurpee, and, and and he's he's enjoying that, and we said, um, and he gave it to his brother, and he said, "Hey, uh, Micah, you can have this." It's like, wow, this that's really nice, <laughs> and, and then you hear like the Slurpee sound, right, as, as his brother gets it, like there's 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 not a whole lot left um and and then I said to Mike, I said, Hey, we can mix a uh I'll mix a little water in there, and that way you can have more and you can you can drink it more because it's kind of like you know I'm going to fall off <laughs> I, I always say i'm going to do that. It never happens, and it just happened right there. <laughs> now you guys would be watching the whole time i'm gonna <laughs> distract you from the message <clears throat> uh, <laughs> uh but, like, for a Slurpee, a lot of times it's, it's that uh, kind of crushed ice, and it's, it's mixed. And so sometimes you'll just have the ice left over, and you, you it took a lot of the moisture, but you put a little water in it, kind of mix it up, it, it expands, and there's that much more. And so i added a little water to it, mixed it up, and, and so Micah's drinking it, and, and no Noah, one's <laughs> sitting there. He just starts bawling. Like, what happened? He said, I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> I wouldn't have given it to him if I knew you could do that, right? Right. So I immediately go from like proud dad moment, right, of like he's sharing his story, like this is a huge sacrifice to, it's only because I didn't think there was anything left, and now that I think there's something left, uh, I want that too, right? Oh, man. Uh, How often do we have that kind of slushy sacrifice, slurpy sacrifice, right? We give up some time if we don't have anything else to do. We give some money if we have anything left over in our budget. We're not about giving ourselves, but rather rounding out our boredom or clearing the spreadsheet. We have to be careful of falling into this last sip mentality ourselves. Think about it. We're called to shine as stars in the sky. And some of us are more concerned about hanging on to the last slurps of our slushy. Right? This isn't me throwing Noah under the bus. This is something I struggle with. Something you may struggle with as well. It's so easy. Because here's the, here's the reality. Self-giving is often ordinary. Self-giving is often ordinary. It's seen in the the small things, the day-to-day things. We have a tendency to not see the spiritual implications in the day-to-day things. It's easy for us to say, I die for Jesus, but not live for him in the moment. As one modern theologian puts it put it, everyone wants to change the world, but nobody wants to do the dishes. Okay. Or somebody kind of rephrased that and said, Everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to change the diapers. Some of you that might hit more effectively. Or we might say this in relationship to our local church. Everybody wants to have a church that is effective and powerful in the community. But nobody wants to give up preferences or weekends to serve. It's easy to fall into this trap. It's easy to fall into this trap. And this is a mark of genuine Christian belief. As one commentator put it, the warning implicit in this is that those who find themselves so out of sympathy with these goals that they place their own interest above the unity of the church and thus the advancement of the gospel should question whether they belong to God's people at all. We can't get the wrong picture, though. If we're not careful, we can see this is a depressing picture. Yeah. Giving of ourselves and, and sacrifice, isn't this a, a, a life of of, of Drudgery? <laughs> no, It's this, this amazing, this, this, this final concept, is a shining is a light, is a life of joy. It's a life of joy. Look, look what he says, I'm pouring this out, and I'm glad, and I rejoice with you all. And then what does he say in verse 18? Likewise, you should be glad, and you should rejoice to me, with me. Here's here's the reality. Joy often comes while pursuing other things. It often comes while pursuing other things. I saw a post on social media earlier this year. It captured it well. A lady wrote this. My pastor at his retirement party today, thanking his wife, said this, and it was beautiful. Here's what he said. Remember when we were young, how we said we wanted to clutter our lives with people, not things. I don't think we understood how rich that would make us. So those words again. Remember when we were young, how we said we wanted to clutter our lives with people, not things. I don't think we understood how rich that would make us. It's wonderful that joy comes where we're just faithfully pursuing other things. It's one of those things that we we can't pursue as an end in itself because it will continue to escape us and elude us and we'll never catch up. We can choose joy in the moment, and that's one aspect of what Paul is calling us to do here, but we cannot try to find it by chasing after things in this life. It's like trying to chase seagulls on the beach. You run after them, you try to catch them, as soon as you get close, they just fly away. But, if you're just sitting there eating a sandwich or chips, they might just land in your lap. (laughs) Uh, So it is with joy. As we're faithfully living for the Lord, joy, happiness, these (laughs) gifts from the Lord might just land in our lap. And what's even more in Paul saying, hey, do this with me, is that we Joy is contagious and necessary, right? Joy is something that's contagious as we find joy. Just just like as he began with this idea of uh, complaining and arguing, that's contagious, right? That spreads. So is joy. What are we more apt to do? Like, if both are holstered at our side, what what are we more quick to pull? and draw joy or complaint what would those closest to you what would they say is your first reaction your fastest trigger figure, finger is it on joy or is it on complaint are things to self-assess to reflect on together if we look over these points again we can see how each are fulfilled in christ christ came not as one complaining or grumbling not as one arguing instead he came as nothing as we learned a couple weeks ago he took on the form of a servant by becoming man for us he was the embodiment of the word of life bringing forth himself for the good of others. He was poured on on the cross. Or in the words of Isaac Watts' famous hymn, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Because, why did he do this? Because in Hebrews 12, 2, it says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Your salvation, if you're here and you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, your salvation brought joy to the Lord of Lords. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ, I, I plead to you, come, trust in him. He stands eager and willing to forgive all who repent of their sins and place their faith and trust in him. Come to him. Experience the joy that's found in Christ. Because think about it. How can we complain and argue when the one who is above all became lowly so that we might be lifted up to shine as stars? Instead, let us rejoice. Let's direct our joy in the same direction as his. In a life of self-giving, A life marked not by complaint, but by dying to self. A life that holds fast to the word of truth. Let's pray together. Dear Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul, who poured out himself for the good of the Philippians. And Father, I thank you for his instructions for us, both directed to the Philippians, but also directed to to, to us, Father, Help us not to be quick to complain and to argue, but quick to spread your joy. Help us to know that joy and happiness does not come by trying to preserve a certain state that we might have, but often comes in the midst of serving you living for others. Help us to do that this week. Help us to love others well, and even if there is false accusations, even if there's, there's things that are coming against us, help us, by your grace, to hold fast to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.